from Nigeria to be here at the 2013 annual lecture, despite our dreadful weather. We're honoured that Dr. and Mrs. Bayemi and Senator Ojudu have been able to make it today. Thank you so much for coming. At Nigerian events, it's customary for the person sat in my position now uh, to say that all protocols are observed. <laughs> I hope that they're duly are. Each year we invite a distinguished African scholar to deliver the African Studies annual lecture. And this year I'm delighted to introduce Professor Wale Adebanji. Wale is currently Professor of African American and African Studies at UC Davis in the US. Before entering the academy, Wale had a distinguished career in journalism. The 1990s were the dark years of military rule in Nigeria, and Wale's political commentaries for Punch, Tribune, Omega, an underground newspaper, and The News saw him champion the pro-democracy movement. In his subsequent academic career, Wale has become a truly interdisciplinary scholar. He trained at the University of Ibadan in political science, being awarded his PhD in 2002, and then studied anthropology at the University of Cambridge, receiving his second doctorate in 2008. If only you'd come to Oxford, Wally, just think of where you'd be now. <laughs> Wally is a prolific writer on the history, culture, and economics of Nigerian politics and media, especially of southwestern Nigeria, and especially of the legacy of Chief Obafemi Awolowo. Just in terms of his books, he's published A History of the News magazine, a biography of Nuru Ribadu, and a major account of anti-corruption and democratic politics since 1990 in Nigeria. And with his colleague, Ebenezer Obadare, they're the dynamic duo of Nigerian, the Nigerian Academy, by the way, Wale has produced major collections addressing the Nigerian state, its post-colonial history, and most recently, the nature of political culture in Nigeria. It's around these themes, then, that Wale will talk today, and as you can see, his title is What Are Friends For? The Fatality of Affinity in the Post-Colonial. Wale, you're very welcome. Thank Thank you for coming. So, as uh, David said, uh, this is an ongoing work uh, on friendship. I've been trying to understand the nature of friendship for about uh, 15 years now and pay particular attention to political friendship. So, what I'm delivering today is uh, part of that ongoing work and my attempt to reflect on the nature of political friendship. On March 5, 1986, the Minister of Defense of the Federal Military Government of Nigeria, who was also the chairman, Joint Chief of Staff, Major General Duncan Valley, announced on live television that the military officers convicted and sentenced to death for their role in the conspiracy to overthrow the military regime of General Ibrahim Mabangida had been secretly executed one hour earlier. The whole nation was shocked. Even though most people sus suspected that the alleged conspirators would be executed, executed some had doubts because 
the most senior among them, among the convicted men, Major General Mamambasa, was the military president's personal friend. Babangida was Vasa's best man during his wedding, while Vasa mounted the martial ceremonial house when Babangida got married. The two, who were born about eight months apart, are from Niger State in central Nigeria. They became friends in 1959 when they met at Dominic College Vida. They joined the Nigerian Army the same day in 1962. They both attended Indian Military School in 1964. They were together at the war from during Nigeria Civil War. They were inseparable in their personal and professional lives. As Vasa's widow, Sophia states, quote, when we got married, I taught IBB, that is Babangida, and my husband were of the same family. The two wore the same size of dress and pair of shoes. IBB would drop the dirty wares in our house and put on my husband's. When IBB traveled out for a further military training, my husband took care of Miriam, Babangida's wife, and her children. Then Vasa, apart from mounting the horsewoman, IBB married Miriam, brought their first set of furniture in the 11th already. Unquote. Vasa insisted on his innocence throughout the period of his trial. Even long after his execution, his family members and top-ranking soldiers and others maintained that he was unjustly murdered for a crime he did not commit. To Babangida commented the news magazine, quote, all these did not count in the, real, in the field of real politics. Unquote. Before he was executed, Vatsa repeatedly sent a message to his wife from, reportedly sent a message to his wife from the maximum security prison. Quote, do not beg Babangida, he's after my life. Take care of the children. I know it is not easy, but God will help you. The general who announced Vasa's execution to the war, General Bali, later stated that, and I quote, My regret is that up till now, I am not sure whether Vatsa ought to have been killed, because whenever, whatever evidence they amassed against him was weak. My only regret is that I could not say, don't do it. I'm not so sure whether we were right to have killed Vatsa. <clears throat> 27 years later, despite the expressions of doubt about the guilt of his friend, Babangida said he had to sign the death warrant of his best man, read that as worst man, because <laughs> that was what the military law required. He added that, and I quote, if I tell you that it was not traumatizing for me, I am lying. A decade earlier, Babangida had said it was after Vasa's plot against him was uncovered that he realized that his childhood friend and classmate planned the coup in line with a deep-seated personal rivalry going back to the early days, the early days as young officers. Etubute is one of the most quoted questions in Western culture indicating the ultimate prayer. It is believed to be the last words uttered by the Roman leader, Julius Caesar, when he discovered that his friend, Brutus, was involved in a conspiracy to assassinate him. Babangida could have asked a similar rhetorical question when he learned, learned uh, that Vasa was one of those planning to overthrow him, or as those who believe that Vagida conspired to kill his friend uh, for the sake of power would have Vatsa, when he was arrested for treating a felon, could have uttered similar words, even you, Ibrahim. Long before Caesar, Aristotle had hinted at how the longing for true friendship is sometimes a futile effort in human experience. Quote, oh my friend, says Aristotle, there is no friend. Almost three decades after executing his friend, Babangida more or less dismissed Vasa as a coward because he claimed that Vasa was trying to escape from detention during trial. In Friendship, a philosophical reader, Nira Badwa describes friendship as, quote, a practical and emotional relationship of mutual and reciprocal goodwill, trust, respect, and love or affection between people who enjoy spending time together, unquote. Against the background of this experience, would Babangida or Vasa, before he was executed, agree with, agree that this captures the potentially fatal relationship 
that existed between them for almost three decades. How would two other notable friends in Africa, this time from Burkina Faso, Captain Thomas Ankara and Captain Blaise Kampari, agree? On 15 October 1987, Kampari led a coup in which his boss friend, the useful and popular military president of Burkina Faso, Sankara, was assassinated. For those who might want to conclude based on this that Kampari and Sankara could not have been good friends, it would be important to remember uh, that earlier, on August 4, 1983, Kampari led a coup which freed his friend Sankara from jail and <coughs> accusations of treason, and subsequently made him the leader of the country at the age of 33. The story of Sankara and Kampari is not too different from that of Agida and Basa, except in its details. They first met in 1976, when they joined uh, orders to form a secret organization within the military known as Communist Officers Group. They were together in Morocco in 1970. A few months before he was assassinated, the charismatic Sankara said in an interview about the friendship that led Kampari and himself to power, quote, I was lucky to have someone who I could trust completely. The day you hear that Kampari is planning to stage a coup against me, don't bother wasting your time trying to stop him. It will be too late for that. How prophetic. Indeed, by the time Kampari sent soldiers to kill his friend, it was too late for Sankara to stop him. Even though he later claimed that the assassination, not the coup, was an error, Kampari's personal grudge against his close friend was evident two days after the assassination when he said at the press conference that Sankara used his charisma and popular image to mislead the foreign press into idolizing him. The man whom Sankara had said he could trust completely went further to declare his late friend as an enemy of the people whose treason to the revolution was as dangerous as his dangerous personal ambitions, unquote. In a sense, Kampori was saying that on the question of who to choose between friendship and the fatherland, he would rather side with Creon in so close Antigone than Ian Foster. While Creon says that, and I quote, if any makes a friend of any account than his fatherland, that man hath no place in my regard, for I would not be silent if I saw him instead of safety coming to the citizens, nor would I ever deem the country's foe a friend to myself, remembering this, that our country is the ship that bears us here, and that only while she prospers in our, in our voyage can we make true friends, unquote. E.M. Foster famously disagrees with this by stating that, quote, if I had to choose between betraying my country and betraying my friend, I hope I should have the gods to betray my country, unquote. <coughs> the experience of Camille Demola, the French radical French journalist, in the hands of his old schoolmate and friend, uh, uh, Robert, um, Rob Spen, who personally signed the order for the former's arrest in the spring of 1794, led Marisa Linton in an analysis of Jacobin contradictory ideas about friendship to conclude that friendship could have fatal consequences. In the politics of friendship, Jack Derrida allows us to the linkage of friendship to money because in every friendship, one friend will die before the other. He argues that even in the infrequent event that two friends die together, their friendship could not but have been structured from the very beginning by the possibility that one of the two will see the other die, and so surviving will be left to bury, to commemorate, and to mourn." While Derrida is right in relating life and friendship with death and money, he obviously didn't have friends like Bagida and Basa or Kampauri and Sankara in mind. Yet, it is evident in these cases, and in others that I will examine shortly, that friendship forms a fundamental part of the conduct of political life in Africa and elsewhere. What 
people do with friendship. Therefore, can you relate the dynamics of power and the political in post-colonial Africa? As Linton argues, quote, friendship straddles the artificial divide between public and private life, and thus help us reevaluate both categories. The survey of the literature on friendship shows that virtue, in different forms, is the dominant theme. Even in considering instrumental forms of friendship, that is one, quote, motivated primarily by each friend's independently divine goals, unquote, there is little or no concern for the possibility of danger or fatality, particularly within the context of extant theorizing on political friendship and existing empirical world. So I wish to pose the question, why is the element of competition and therefore the potentiality of fatality not a central theme? Yet, from the experience of popular and Asian uh, modern friends, Asian and modern friends, such as Oristis and Pali, Lysis and Menezenus, Achilles and Patrocus, Damon and Pythas, David and Jonathan, Rodan and Dolan and Oliver, and Brutus and Caesar, we have learned that while friendship is mostly about amity, friendship can also lead to enmity. Therefore, against this backdrop of my, uh, backdrop of my assumptions, about the inherent and potential dangers of friendship, is it possible to change the central focus when we think about friendship? I do not intend to answer a perennial question which has engaged philosophers and social thinkers over the centuries, that is, what is friendship? As Aristotle warned us many centuries ago, quote, not a few things about friendship are matters of debate. Before Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and Lysis asked several questions from two friends, Lysis and Mediterranean to show that one can recognize friends without being able to say what a friend is. Yet, examining friendship as an ancient and as ancient of modern philosophers have shown is a critical way of understanding the human condition. What I propose to do is to use the specific form of, this specific form of affinity, which is regarded by those involved in such relationships as friendship, to reflect on the important question, what are friends for? Therefore, I approach the definitional challenge of friendship by looking at some practical context of friendship against the backdrop of the political. This is not an inverted way of approaching the question of what constitutes friendship. Rather, it is an attempt to encourage a more nuanced scholarly approach to this important form of relationship in human society, particularly in the post-colonial context, that is, in terms of some of the social and political dynamics that friendship reproduces, which have been largely overlooked in the literature. Contemporary literature engages with various dimensions of political friendship and their implications for specific politics, particularly given the assumptions of the inherent contradictions between friendship and politics. However, despite the centrality of friendship in African political life, and in spite of the emphasis on interpersonal relationships in the literature, friendship has not gained sufficient attention among African and Africanist uh, social scientists, especially when compared with other forms of affinity, such as kinship, ethnicity, patriarchal relations, and others. Uh, here, I examine why and how the emphasis on trust, solidarity, amicability, cordiality, morality, goodness, and virtue, in extant understanding of friendship leads scholars to overlook the potential vitality of friendship within the context of the political. I hope to underline why students of African politics should pay greater attention to political friendship and use the phenomenon in new ways to understand the dynamics of and the struggle for power in contemporary Africa. I do this for uh, a number of reasons. One, uh, because friendship is sometimes as consequential as other forms of relationship or related, relatedness, which African and African scholars often examine in understanding specific forms of political outcomes in Africa. 
particularly in the context of the struggle for power. And also do this to point attention to how to salivate some of the areas of scholarship in African studies, which involves friendship, but in which friendship is overlooked because of the attention paid to other forms of uh, relationship, such as membership of elite groups. Elite groups in many contexts in Africa, as elsewhere, are often based on the network of friends. And thirdly, to alert us to how in the attention to tradition, in quote, and its assumed perpetual resurfacing in the African social formation, and the ways in which it is invented and constructed to produce and reproduce such negative phenomena such as ethnicity, Africanists often overlook the modernity of some forms of social solidarity, such as friendship, which are capable of providing important perspectives in understanding the political, including the political economy of contemporary African states. Now I will briefly discuss uh, the position of ancient and modern thinkers on friendship. Friendship is a relationship on which the most important philosophers and social thinkers of all ages have had important things to say, from Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, uh, and Cicero, through Montaigne, Tocqueville, and Lockhart to Giddings, Derrida, and Foucault. The meaning, significance, and purpose of friendship in public life have uh, exercised demands of philosophers, theologians, political scientists, social thinkers, and later sociologists and anthropologists. At the core of the ancient philosophical reflection on this question is whether the need for this specific form of affinity and social solidarity is produced by wholeness or a constitutive uh, lack in social beings. While Aristotle pushes us towards regarding friendship as a phenomenon produced by wholeness or completeness and the challenges raised by this, Jack Derrida alerts us to the insufficiency at the core of the phenomenon and the philosophical and practical questions that such insufficiency invite. Yet, in the context of the idealized transcendental spiritual goal that constitutes friendship, for Derrida, we must go back to the foundational question, the statement by Aristotle, oh, my friend, there is no friend. For Aristotelia, which is problematically translated in English into friendship, was necessary for happiness in classical place such that no one could hope to flourish without friends. Aristotle uses the concept of friendship to fully express himself, insisting that close and intimate friendships are a necessary, a necessary consequent of the flourishing human life. He remains one of the most important philosophers to whom every analytical discussion of friendship must return. His conception of the best form of friendship has influenced Western ideas about friendship more than any other, even though Aristotle was preceded in his reflection on friendship by his teacher Plato, and of course Plato's teacher Socrates. But in spite of that, moral philosophers concerned with this, the question of duty and responsibility, and political philosophers concerned uh, with the question of order and obligation and justice, have concentrated the attention on the Aristotelian conception of friendship, while likely ignoring Socrates and Plato, particularly because Socrates could see friendship as a utility calculation and a negative application. <coughs> Yet, in some of the paradoxes and questions raised by Socrates' life, uh, an important conundrum in friendship. For instance, Socrates asks Menizenus, the friend of Lysis, when one person likes or loves another, which one is the friend? The one who likes, the one who is liked, or both? What this ancient question points out for those of us in the modern world is that is the possibility of friend A liking or loving friend B who does not really like friend A, with friend A not bothered about friend B's attitude to his friendship. Is the true friend a person who likes or a person who likes one? 
or is true friendship evident only when A likes B and B likes A? While we cannot surrender the essence of friendship to the kind of philosophical game that Socrates played with the two friends, it's important to know that indeed some types of friends can be involved in this kind of game in practical terms. Also, we need to pay attention to another implication of Socrates' position, which is that, quote, to feel failure for someone is to want for oneself whatever it is that that person desired has that is perceived as good as oneself. Therefore, friendship in this sense, as Plato concludes, is for the sake of something or for a reason. I will return to these Socratic paradoxes later in talking about the specific cases that I will examine shortly. Aristotle is particularly different from his master Plato because he rejects non-mutuality. His substantial account of the defining marks of true failure emphasizes mutuality and reciprocity. He states that, quote, to be friends, then they must be mutually recognized as bearing goodwill and wishing well each other. What Aristotle does is to resolve the paradox at the heart of the Socratic Platonic conception of failure, specifically in relation to wanting friendship for the sake of something or for a reason. Aristotle warns that if we are to if we are not to keep desiring one thing for the sake of another at infinity, then we must have a specific thing that we want for its own sake. I will show later in the examples that I also gave in my general case how, why, and why this is important. The ultimate purpose of friendship for Aristotle is a good life, not only for oneself and one's friend, but also for the police. Given the fundamental logic of power and public life in the post colony, the question is do political friendships produce the good life in Africa? The, point, the third point about Aristotle's take on friendship that is important from analysis of the Nigerian case is that. Is what he describes as the three, uh, the three objects of friendship. One, the good, two, the pleasant, and th three, the useful. Against this backdrop, he concludes that the love of the good, the pleasant, and the useful leads to different kinds of relationships. The good leads to virtue or complete friendship. Pleasure leads to pleasure friendship, while the useful leads to advantage friendship. Even though Aristotle states in a passage that human beings aim at the good and the pleasant, thus making the useful a derivative aim, I would like to pose two questions regarding to this, particularly in the context of the struggle for power. One, can there be a friendship that is good without being useful, even if it is unpleasant? Is utility not a crucial component of good friendship in this context? I will move on to discuss uh, uh, the take of political scientists on <coughs> friendship. But before I do that, uh, let me talk briefly about Jack Derrida uh, in his famous work on friendship. And of course, in his inimitable deconstructionist time, he attempts to find what he calls a groundless ground, one that is ultimately without presence, without semblance, without affinity, and without analogy. Derrida emphasizes otherness in friendship as against sameness, asking, against the backdrop of license, can there be a friendship without affinity? On his part, Foucault approaches friendship in the context of his analysis of the case of the self, of the care of the self, which he considers a possible resistance to socio-political power. Friendship in this sense for Foucault must not only ground itself in its remoteness from power, it must minimally, it, it must be minimally institutionalized and normalized. Uh, and therefore, this moves, uh, this takes me to uh, the take of uh, political science on friendship. Despite the rich legacy of 
reflections on friendship in both ancient and modern moral and political philosophy. And despite the fact that friendship is a crucial resource in the accumulation of political power, contemporary political science has largely ignored friendship. This is understandable in a sense because for most contemporary researchers, friendship and politics are incompatible. While friendship is presumed to be private, emotive, and predisposing to partiality, politics is assumed to be public, procedural, and based on impartiality. In a different perspective, while friendship is about sincerity, trust, self-sacrifice, freedom, and transparency, politics is about suspicion, dirty hands, hidden agenda, and personal ambition. Against this background, friendship has not had much purchase in modern democratic debates. There is no doubt that tension exists at the heart of the association of friendship with politics. Both appear to be mutually destructive. While politics is necessary evil, friendship is a good that everyone ought to desire, or so most people think. Many believe that there is no friend in politics, as there is or should be no politics between friends. The late US President Harry Truman captured this by saying, if you want to have a friend in Washington, get yourself a dog. <laughs> Long before Truman, Cicero stated that, quote, two friendships are very hard to find among those who, whose time is spent in office or in business of a public kind. There are three possible conclusions that undergird the assumptions of the irreversible nature of friendship and politics. One, friendship and politics is a utopia project. Two, friendship must be divorced from <coughs> politics. Three, Friendship is actually destructive to politics and it survives justice through the arbitrary use of power. However, these assumptions have been challenged in recent literature. As more political scientists pay greater attention to friendship, we find that we can gain a better perspective of politics in modern society in descriptive, analytic, and normative terms. By studying the core, substantial tie, ties between politics and friendship, unquote. By going back to, going back to Asian philosophers, and the role they assign to friendship in personal, ethical, and political context. And relating that to contemporary experiences of friendship between and among powerful people, we are able to account in interesting ways for the flourishing or decline and the stability or instability of modern politics, particularly in the post-colonial context. Indeed, friendship is a way of theorizing the political, and the political is also an interesting way of theorizing friendship. There is a constant striving for friendship in politics, which produces the Aristotelian idea of political friendship, which some people consider as an oxymoron. But I argue here that by relating the Aristotle, by relating Aristotle's concept of political friendship to Kashmir's concept of the political, contemporary political science can account not only for friendship in the contemporary polity in general, but also specifically for the potential fatality of affinity. And I will discuss that briefly. For Aristotle, the polity exists to ensure and preserve good life. Therefore, political friendship is what is, quote, that which appears to keep the polity, politics together. But for Schmidt, the political is defined, is defined by dividing people into friends and enemies, with greater attention paid to enmity than to friendship. For now, let us leave aside the debate about the nature of the political, which even Schmidt admits is difficult to define. What is important for me is to recognize the essential contestability in social life that is underscored by the concept of the political. That is, quote, the possibility of real conflict by virtue of the fact that there is an element of decision in everything human, unquote. The political, therefore, can be defined as 
the ubiquitous possibility in everything social of real conflict. In this context, politics become, quote, the totality of ways of dealing with the facts of the political. However, there are two elements of Schmittian thought that are relevant from understanding of the political relation to the potential fatality of friendship. One, Schmidt argues that because anything can be political, anything can lead to a division into friends and enemies with the ultimate consequence of physical death. Even though Schmidt conceives of friends and enemies in corporate terms, I like to argue that his perspective is still very useful in understanding personal friendship and enmity within a polity. For Schmidt, the enemy is, quote, the other, the stranger, the existential outsider, whose intense hostility and readiness for combat threatens the state and the relations of friendship in time to it, unquote. Therefore, enmity is not defined merely by personal feelings or moral judgment, but by intensely hostile power, one that menaces the state. What always matters, argues me, is only the possibility of conflict. In contrast to enemies, Schmidt sees friends as those who share a commitment to a way of life that binds them together, that gives them a sense of solidarity, a sense of transcending matters of economic or morality. This condition of amity among friends for Schmidt is always prior to enmity because a life-threatening thing must come after only after a life-affirming force. What then happens when a life-threatening death is also produced from the category of a hitherto life-affirming force? That is, when the life-threatening friend also becomes, when the life-affirming friend also becomes life-threatening. Derrida also flags this possibility when he asks if we could have a friend who is politically an enemy or vice versa. Against the backdrop of Schmidt's analysis of what constitutes friends and enemies, what is important for me in Schmittian thought here is his, conclusion, is his conclusion that the political is ultimately a question of life and death, a question that presupposes the existence of an enemy, a category which is not determined by the antithesis, antithesis of good versus evil. Let me also briefly talk about anthropology and friendship because I'm both a political scientist and an anthropologist. More than four decades ago, Robert Payne argue that even though anthropologists themselves live lives in which friendship is probably just as important as kinship and a good deal more problematic to handle, they dwell more upon kinship and have had less to say about friendship. He blames this on the formal tradition of our discipline and the way in which we are trained to see most relationships in kinship terms, even when they might be relations of friendship. Payne <coughs> noted this pattern despite the existence of ethnographic accounts by some who were not trained anthropologists. But even such works in the late colonial and immediate post-colonial era in Africa that devoted attention to friendship did so only as a relationship woven into the fabric of kinship and politics. Others have argued that apart from anthropologists now hopefully abandoned predilection <coughs> for exotizing the uh, other cultures, particularly African cultures, the dominant perspective of many of the disciplines earliest concerned about friendship was that of, quote, ritualized personal relations. Against this battle, Sandra Bell and uh, Simon Coleman asked if Western notions of friendship and intimacy can be evident in other societies. In their recent editor volume, The Ways of Friendship Anthropological Perspective, Achilles and Desai reject these assumptions that associate friendship with Western societies by approaching it as exclusively related to modernity, that is, European modernity. However, as Bell and Coleman note, at the start of the last decade of the 20th century, Anthropological consideration of the role of friendship in social life in contemporary times is long overdue. 
And despite the greater attention that friendship has attracted in the last one decade, there is still far too little scholarship or friendship in Africa compared to kinship and other forms of relationship, including relationship and ethnicity. The friendship poses fundamental questions to anthropologists about agency, emotion, creativity, uh, creativity, and the self. We can find evidence for answering these questions in every society because, contrary to the argument of some, it is not only in Western societies that anthropologists are quote, forced to confront contexts where of stable networks of intimacy, frequently or related to kinship ties, constitute key arenas of social interaction and identity formation. The focus on friendship, therefore, particularly political friendship, is capable of leading us to pose new and key questions about the social, cultural, and political realities that, are, that we are forced to witness and observe, especially in my own case in Africa. Now, let me go to the case study. Um, a few, two or three other case studies apart from the two that I started. Let me illustrate my central argument and my call for greater focus on friendship among Africans and African social scientists by examining the complex, cross-cutting, and highly consequential friendship among six powerful Nigerians, former military president General Ibrahim Babangida, the late winner of the Pivotal June 12, 1993 presidential election, the late Minister of Federal Capital Territory, and the poet, Adirama Ambassador, former Chief of Staff, Supreme Headquarters, and Presidential Contender for almost one decade, late Major General Shiu Musayera the late Military Head of State, General Sonia Bacha, President Olusha Mombasojo, and his former Attorney General, Chief Polagi. There are three points I must make quickly. First, from the profile of all these men, their roles, and the position they occupy in Nigeria's national life, it's already evident that their friendship would not but have been politically consequential. However, the fact that their friendship were, friendships were also fatal in virtually every case invites us to examine the potential fatality of friendship when friendship intersects with the search for power in the post-colonial. Two, the friendships and ambition of these seven men have largely defined the political history of Nigeria in the last three decades and have, thus, where friendship defines a particular political history and the political, social, uh, and uh, where friendship defines a particular political history and other conse consequential trajectory within the nation, then social scientists ought to pay greater attention. Also, the friendship of these three, these seven men, were largely cross-cutting. To point to a few instances that we examined shortly, Abiola was Babangida's friend, was also Abacha's friend. He was also Yaradua's friend and business partner. Yaradua was Abiola's friend. He was also Babangida's friend. He was Abacha's friend. Babangida was not only Abiola's friend, he was also Yaradua's friend, as well as Abacha and Vasa's friend. In his own case, Abasa Joe was the boss of all these arms bearing men. And at his IPD, Yaradua and Abacha and Vasa was only his friend. Uh, Nigoski has argued that, quote, politics seems a real testing ground of friendship, chiefly because it's a testing ground of character and goodness. Most are said to fail the test. Politics then is a sphere where one really finds true friendship, and if they are holding there, they do not generally survive. So let me talk about Viola and uh, Babagida, uh, which I call friendship nurtured by ambition. The friendship between Abiola, one of the richest men in modern Africa, and the Mercurial General Ibrahim Babagida, one of the most ambitious men that ever wore the army uniform in Nigeria, is one of the most illustrative of how the side for power and resources initially unites, but eventually puts asunder. Abiola and Babangida became friends in the mid-1970s, when Abiola emerged as one of the richest men in Nigeria, using, among others, his friendship with the soldiers in power. 
Abdullah is believed to have financed the coup that brought General Muhammad Buhari to power in December 1983. He also financed the coup that brought Bangida to power in, uh, on August 27, 1985. With his friend in power as military president, Abiola enjoyed greater power and access. Such was the closeness of Abiola and Babangida that Abiola's first son, Kola, and Babangida's first daughter, Aisha, were even rumored to enjoy remarks that was to be consummated in marriage before their parents' enmity, some guard the children. There was something, however, that Babangida and Abiola shared, which turned out to be deeper than their relationship. That was an unflinching loss for power at Ulale, the presidency. From the late 1970s, Abiola, then in his, in his 30s, mobilized his vast resources to build an awesome network across Nigeria, Africa, and even beyond, which was geared towards facilitating his ambition to become the president of Nigeria through the ballot box. So many factors blocked, so many factors blocked this ambition, including military rule. On his part, Babangida, who had participated in every successful coup until the one that eventually made him military president, was convinced that shooting his way to power would be a first step towards buying himself legitimacy to remain as president or transmute to the life president. When Abiola financed Babangida's coup, he must have expected that when his friend eventually quit power, it would help him to become Nigeria's second democratically elected pre uh, executive president. Though the gift, in, in the most sense, is theoretically free, in practical life, there is usually the expectation of a counter gift. However, as the years went by, it became evident that Bagida was not eager to leave power quickly. Yet, in his own way, and unwittingly, Abiola helped Babangida to perpetrate himself in power under the wrong belief that his friend meant well for Nigeria. Before he joined the presidential race, given that what had clearly emerged as Babangida's reluctance to hand over power to civilians, Abiola sought his friend's assurance that there was indeed a vacancy in the highest office in the land. Babangida characteristically lied to his friend that he was committed to handing over power to civilians. Preferably, Abiola, on the eve of Abiola's public declaration of his interest in running for the presidency, Babangida was by Abiola's side in his home in Lagos as he buried his first wife, Cynthia. So it was the close relationship of Abiola and Babangida that many Nigerians thought Abiola's interest in the presidential race was employed to, for Babangida to elongate his martial rule. Yet Babangida even reportedly provided some financial assistance for his friend and even tried, though unsuccessfully, to choose Abiola's running mate. However, as the date of the presidential election neared, it became evident, evident to Babangida that this new path to the termination of his ruinous reign as military president might be real. Thus, Babangida, who had absolutely no intention to leave power, sponsored a series of plots and schemes to stop his friend, who was clearly a far more difficult person to stop than uh, other dis uh, dispensable opponents. Babangida's man Friday, a politician, uh, Arthur Zeribe, formed a shadowy group called Association for Better Nigeria, which went to court to stop the June 12, 1993 presidential election of Philip Sikha. On June 11, 1993, the eve of the election, an Abuja court granted an interlocutory injunction stopping the conduct of the election, despite the fact that Decree 13 stated clearly that no decision of any court could stop the election. The National Electoral Commission ignored the court ruling and conducted the election with Abiola won overwhelmingly. As a result of the election were being announced, Conflicting court rulings all over the country either supported the full official announcement of result or suspended such announcement. These, among others, were the excuses used by Babangida to annul the election, which resulted in the victory of his friend. Babangida told the country that he felt, quote, a profound sense of disappointment at the outcome of our last effort at laying the foundation of a viable democratic system of government in Nigeria, unquote. In what can be described as pure speak, Babangida stated that annulling the election that would have made his friend his successor was in full conformity with the avowed commitment of the administration 
to advance the cause of national unity, stability, and democracy. But when Peter of Ash pulled us behind on which the anomaly was based, some of which were directed, uh, although in a veiled manner, specifically at his uh, stupendously rich friend, Abiola. Even while considering that many people regarded the election as free and fair, the military president said that, quote, there were proofs as well as documented evidence of widespread use of money during the party primaries as well as presidential election. The military president added that there, was also, there were also moral issues involved, which were earlier overlooked, including cases of documented and confirmed conflict of interest between the government and both presidential aspirants that would compromise their position and responsibilities were there to become president. Babangida, however, betrayed that his tirade was targeted at his friend, who had protested the annulment of the election and whose geopolitical zone, southwestern Nigeria, was the most vociferous in condemning the annulment. Babangida added that, quote, to continue action on the basis of June 12, 1993 election, and to proclaim and swear in a president who encouraged a campaign of divide and rule among our ethnic groups would have been detrimental to the survival of the Third Republic of Congo. He then listed a new set of criteria for contesting the presidential election. Babangida's June 26, 1993 speech, unveiling his diabolical scheme against the nation and his friend, came two days after Abiola's categorical rejection and renunciation of the decision of the regime led by his friend. Abiola stated that the regime's decision to annul the election, quote, is invidious, unpatriotic, and capable of causing undue and unnecessary confusion in the country, unquote. Daring his friend and the military, Abiola added that, quote, as I speak today and by the infinite grace of God and the wishes of the people of this country, the president-elect of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. I am the custodian of a sacred mandate freely given, which I cannot surrender unless the people so demand, unquote. Thus, Abiola confirmed his decision to assume the reins of power on August 27, when his friend was expected to back power. In his response to his friend's decision to annul the free, uh, the free and fair election, Abiola could be taken to have expressed his position on the question raised by Cicero in Lilos concerning how far love ought to go in friendship. For Cicero, since the highest moral good is the primary condition for public order, where public order and amicable loyalty collide, loyalty towards the community has absolute priority. This was echoed by Abiola in rejecting what he described as an invidious and patriotic action, capable of causing undue and necessary confusion in Nigeria. When Aristotle stated that there is no need for justice among friends, because friendship supersedes justice, he obviously could not have anticipated what happened between IBB and Abiola, which resulted in Abiola's five-year-long battle for justice, with, with lasting consequences uh, for the country. As it turned out, eventually, Abiola and Abangida uh, tried to make up in the course of the ID in the uh, aftermath of the anomaly, and Abiola wrote what was described by some as a love letter to Abangida. But it turned out, Abiola even affirmed that he was aware of Abangida's love for Nigeria and all Africans. But Abiola's knowledge of Abangida's love for Nigeria and his acknowledgement of the friendship which he described as a worthy example for others to copy did not seem to find further credence because IBB reneged on his promise to help Abiola fight for the reclamation of his mandate. It could be argued that Abiola's preparedness to resume his friendship with IBB was based on genuine feelings of amity. But as evident in this in his letter to Babangida, it was also important because it was predicated on Babangida's promise to assist his friend in becoming president. If there was virtue at all in the presumption of the friendship, evidently it was also going to be, following Aristotle's analysis, a friendship of pleasure. 
as well as a friendship of utility. Thus, they presume the enduring qualities of their friendship, that is, uh, that based on virtue and goodness, could not survive without pleasure and utility. From this point on, Babangida's friendship with Abiola moved to the background, as Abiola confronted another friend, Abacha, a, a confrontation which eventually claimed Babiola's life. Babangida later told the New York Times about the annulment, quote, the agony I went through is really better imagined, but it was the price I had to pay. What we did was wrong, but we tried to rationalize it. Abiola was my friend for 25 years, a very genuine friend. From the day we met, there was a rapport. I had my friend there waiting to take over. It would have been a great destiny, unquote. As Roger Cohen of New York Times observed, destiny, however, led elsewhere to the cruelty and crassness of the Abacha regime. Now, let me talk to you about Abacha and Abiola, what I call the deadly path of betrayal. After the annulment of the historic June 12, 1993 election and the exit of the perfidious friend, of his perfidious friend, who imposed the interim national government on Nigeria, Abela was convinced that another friend, General Sani Abadia, would help him to retrieve his mandate and by so doing, save the country from the slide into anarchy. There seemed to have been an agreement between the two friends. In this case, unlike the irreconcilable dualist challenge that several anticipated, here was a situation in which Abiola and Abadia appeared to believe that public and amicable loyalties were united. Therefore, on September 28, 1993, in Kaduna, Abiola sang the praises of his patriotic friend, Dazabata, who was ready again to put the nation's interests above personal rivalry, personal rivalries between Abiola and Babangida, and the personal ambition of the recently retired military president, stated Abiola, and I quote, I have been talking to the military people. They are the people to talk to because the military caused the, this problem. For, the, for people like Sonia Abata, this country would have been, but for people like Sonia Abata, this country would have been plunged into bloodshed. I really commend General Sonia Abata because, out of love of the country, he put his common ex sense, experience, tact, and intellect to ease out Babangida. I have no doubt that it is that common sense, that patriotism, that intellect that will ease out Babangida's surrogates, that is the interim national government, too, of course. In this statement, Abiola revealed the ongoing secret negotiations between him and the top uh, brass of the military, led by his friend Sonia Abata. Abata had persuaded Abiola against forming a parallel government once the court verdict declared the IRG as illegal. As Senator Polatinumbu later revealed, the essence of Abata's intervention was to come and correct the situation that is the June 12 annulment in the interest of the nation so that we can move the nation forward. Tinumbu added, when they drafted the coup speech, Abacha was to read. It was titled The Way Forward. We put in, we had input into it. We drafted it, corrected it, and the speech or broadcast was clear on its mission. It was simply for the realization of June 12 presidential election. Abiola later confirmed this in an interview with the news magazine. Like in the case of Abangida, Abacha and Abiola had been friends for many years. Abacha had been the beneficiary of Abiola's famous generosity. As stated earlier, Abiola also funded the coup that brought Babangida and Abacha to power as the two most powerful soldiers in Nigeria. In the wake of Babangida's retirement, he retired all service chiefs and other senior military officers and left his friend, Sonia Abacha, in office, appointing him the Minister of Defense. It became evident later that Abacha was posing as a pro-democracy general, faithful friend of Abiola, and an officer committed to the preservation of the sovereign rights of Nigerians to elect their leaders. But Abacha needed a pretense to take over power, even after he removed the officers whom Babangida appointed to strategic offices on the eve of his departure. The removal of Babangida boys, as they were called, left Abacha with absolute control of the military. Yet, the mood of the nation and the attitude of the international community were factors that were critical to his calculations. 
But to Abiola, Abacha was the key to the realization of, of his own ambition. After returning home from exile, he entered into negotiation with Abacha about how to recover his mandate. Abacha reportedly gave Abiola assurances, but insisted that he would need to take over power and neutralize the Babangida boys and anti-Abiola elements in the military before Abiola could be declared the validly, validly elected president. <laughs> Abiola believed his friend. The state was set to make it easy for Abiola to take over power. Abiola went to court, asking the court to declare the ING illegal. On November 10, 1993, Justice Dolapo, a of the Lagos High Court, declared the ING illegal and ordered the invocation of the provisions of 1989 Constitution to fill the vacuum that would be created by the exit of the illegal government. This was the final excuse that Bacha needed court to save the country, having entered into a secret agreement with his friend. Seven days later, Abacha seized power and made himself head of state. For Abiola, it was the last step towards reclaiming his mandate, annoyed by another friend. Loyalty to friendship and loyalty to public good was going to be united in one man, General Abadja. Abiola was even asked to nominate people to cabinet for cabinet position in Abadja's government. He was a bit dubious about this, but given his involvement in the negotiation that brought Abadja to power, some of, associate, of his associates and supporters set themselves behind his back to plumb positions in the new regime. Abiola was hesitant about this because since Abadja was supposed to send only a few months in power before facilitating Abiola's emergence as president, there would have been no need for his supporters to take up positions in the new regime. But the first sign of what lay in the horizon for Abiola was Abadja's school speech. It was a different version of what they had jointly drafted. Abiola, what Abadja read to the nation included, for instance, a decision to remove all democratically elected government at all levels. A news magazine reported, quote, the road to a tragic clash between Abacha and Abiola was cleared once his meeting broadcast brought home the message of the prayer. Yet, Abacha must have explained this away as part of his attempts to clear the path for his friend. Shortly after Abacha took over, as a show of solidarity uh, for his friend, and perhaps a demonstration of his stake in the new regime, Abiola went to visit Abacha in the first house, then the temporary seat of government. The photograph of both men emerging from the seat of power was on the front page of newspapers and news magazines. It turned out that Abiola only went to see his friend to express his surprise at the Kuspi and to seek reassurance that the agreement would be respected. Abacha reportedly pleaded with Abiola for time to stabilize the polity before calling on him to take over power. However, Abacha was uh, also very frank with his friend before the coup. He too, like the other friends and contemporaries, General Buhari and General Paragida, would like to be head of state of Nigeria, no matter how short that would be. It was reported, uh, it was reportedly for this reason, Abiola agreed that Abacha should stay in office for six months, that is from November 1993 to March 1994, before any other part of But in the months that followed this, it became evident to Abiola that everyone else and everyone else, that Abacha did not wait so long in the wings of his other friend, Abangida particularly, who did everything to perpetuate himself in office and that he did not execute his coup only to hand over power to someone else. The man who had been called Khalifa, which meant uh, king in waiting, was no longer ready to wait or to seek power. As a news magazine reported, quote, obviously it is within this goal that we can locate the cause of antagonism between two friends, two former friends. A question that has defied answer so far is what went wrong in the abacha abiola power deal. The answer that the news magazine sought was already evident in the question. Power. Abacha, of course, denied that he agreed to spend only a few months in power and hand over power to Abiola. 
in an October 1995 national broadcast. He even accused Abiola of reneging on his own promise to the regime. Later, spokesperson for the regime accused Abiola of betraying Abacha. On his part, Chinumbu said Abacha sold a dummy to Abiola and obtained power by deception by pretending to be produced. Abiola eventually decided to go for broke against his intractable friend. He announced to the world that he would be sworn in as president even if everyone's fall on the first anniversary of his annual election. Once he announced his intention, Abiola went on the offensive against his friend. For instance, he described Abacha, who he had earlier commended for his common sense, patriotism, and intellect as a parasite eating the dog. He added that, quote, like the parasite which dies when it eats the dog to death, Abacha will eventually destroy himself if he continues to fight opposition to his leadership. On June 11, 1994, Abiola made good his promise. At the Eleganza Sports Complex in the Better Central Lagos, he declared himself president. The title of his speech was the same as the title of the speech that Tinumbu claimed to have been the original title of Abacha's proposed good speech, The Way Forward. This declaration set in motion a chain of events that led to the death of many Nigerians, including highly placed people and demonstrators and the incarceration of several activists and the destabilization of the economy and of the Nigerian state, effects of which are still felt in Nigeria till today. Abiola went into hiding after declaring himself president and remarked on June 23 and was arrested in the early mornings of June 24 at his residence in Lagos. Before Abiola was arrested, it was reported that Kola Abiola Seldesan reached out to his father's health welfare, Abacha, to try to reach a settlement between them adding that, quote, Abiola had realized that those surrounding him were pushing him into trouble. If indeed Abiola's son told Abacha this, he was mistaken about the result of his father. The man who, Newsworth stated, uh, as Newsworth stated, made a fortune through the deft and deployment of blackmail, bravado, and business acumen, and struck, struck a lucrative symbiotic relationship with the military establishment, and one to whom, uh, uh, to whom he served as a useful ally in their inordinate power seizures and manipulations, unquote, would not be intimidated. As the news magazine added, Abiola's friends in the ministry, including Abacha, knew him at close range to be a man of ambition, but men of power are usually suspicious of men of ambition. From Lagos, Abiola was driven to Gashua in the dry and clement northern northeastern Nigeria, where he was detained in the prison. On June 7, when Abiola was brought to court in the Black Maria to start his prison trial, he told journalists that the regime of his friend wanted oh, to humiliate me. I have never been humiliated in my life. They want me to die, but I won't die, but Abiola died. Exactly four years after I made that statement, that is on June 7, 1998, after a few years in solitary confinement with hardly any contact with the outside world, Abiola reportedly suffered a cardiac arrest while meeting with U.S. diplomats in Abuja. He was said to have been offered tea by one of the American diplomats. Many still believe that the circumstances of his death remain suspicious. Others believe that given the sudden and almost curious death of his first world friend, General Abacha, four weeks earlier, the decision had been taken in some quarters to take out the two frenemies, as uh, uh, an American channel called Friends Who Are Also Enemies. But before Abacha died, he more or less turned his friend's house into desolate grounds and tried to ruin his businesses. His agents also assassinated Abiola's senior wife, Udira, and detained his son for alleged complicity in the murder of his stepmother. In spite of his failing health, Abacha refused to allow Abiola's doctor to have restrained access to him. At a point, when Abiola was told about the harsh conditions for the bail being considered for him, he was said to have stated, death is better than to be ridiculed. In two of the most significant comments made by those close to Abiola by his faith, we can see the challenges of friendship in the context of the political. First, 
One of Abiola's wives, Doni, stated that, quote, my husband is too trusting, almost childlike, unquote. And Ganifa Emi, the late social critic and eminent lawyer, added that Abiola was not prepared for his fate because, quote, he mistakenly trusted his military friends since he had helped them, sponsored them, and protected them. He assumed that friendship with them would be a stabilizing factor, but it was not. But isn't trust an important element in friendship? Does the outcome of friendship, such as the fatal experience of Abdullah in the hands of Babangida and Abaja, therefore imply that friends must be careful about being trusted? Ordinarily, given what transpired between Abdullah and Abaja, you would expect that both would no longer, both of them would no longer want to be seen to act in a cordial way towards each other. This again points out towards an important element in political friendship, public acting. Public acting or political friendship include performances of cordiality, care, intimacy, and trust from a friend towards another. These performances may be heartfelt or not, but what is important is the fact that those who claim to be friends feel an obligation to engage in these public performances of amity. It is striking that in the case of political friends, these performances of amity happen even in the context of enmity. For, uh, for instance, after the assassination of Abdullah's wife, Abacha sent emissaries to commiserate with the family at the barrier. This is despite the fact that he knew that his agents killed Kudirat. Therefore, we can take Abacha's performance of amity in this, in this context as bogus. However, the reverse was true for Abiola after Abacha died. In his letter from jail to Abacha's widow, Miriam, Abiola writes, quote, Please, be firmly assured that you and your entire family will always be considered by me and my whole family as friends, brothers, and sisters. As I assure your late husband in my last letter to him on 10th October 1996, despite all he has done and will probably continue to do, I could never hate him in my heart. My love for him never diminished because I know that Satan, the open enemy, was the cause of his kissing. Whatever the nature of the outcome of the friendship of between Babangida and Abiola, Abiola and Abaja, and Abiola and Abiola Ab and Abaja and Abiola and Abaja, between 1993 and 1998, because of their friendship and their ambitions, and the fact that they all set their eyes on the same public office, Nigeria never knew peace. Let me conclude by giving you the last example, which is between President Tomishev Mabasanjo and his Attorney General, um, Chief The friendship between President Tomishev Mabasanjo and the man who was called the Cicero, the late Attorney General of the Federation of Minister of Justice, Chief Kolaide was one of the most unusual kinds of friendship that, they can, that can be in politics. They were irreconcilable ideological opposites, yet enjoyed a warm amity that lasted about four decades. Igyanobas Ajo's friendship exemplifies Derrida's poster about the possibility of having a personal friend who is politically an enemy or vice versa. Igy was an apostle of Chief Laws ideological camp in Nigerian politics. In fact, he stated regularly that no one could claim to be closer to our political than he. Yet, he was also a close friend of President Obasanjo, who did everything in his power to oppose Awolawa's ambition to be president, and has done everything since Awolawa's death to diminish our place in Nigeria's history and the dominance of his political philosophy in Yoruba land. As Mr. Yemi Farumbi, uh, a close uh, uh, advisor of Ike, told me during my field work or my other work on the Yoruba politics, he can be the friend of two enemies, as he was of Agu and Abbasanjo. He was incapable of deep-seated anger or malice, unquote. How did he reconcile this ordinarily irreconcilable commitment? 
And now, after attempting to contest the presidential election against his friend, Obasanjo, did he end up as Obasanjo's minister? And how was he able to reconcile his plan to leave Obasanjo's government and ensure the electoral defeat of the president party with his decision to also ensure that the president won re-election? Could any of these contradictions have been responsible partly for his assassination? There are many questions that remain unanswered about the unusual and eventually fatal friendship between Obasanjo and Ike. Ike and Obasanjo became friends in 1967 when the former became the Commissioner for Culture and the Military Government of the Western Region of Nigeria. Obasanjo was then the commander of the Army Brigade in Mali. They maintained a warm relationship even when Obasanjo was head of state between 76 and 79. In 1979, Ike was elected governor of your state under the platform of UPN, led by Awolo. Even though the leadership of the UPN and their supporters believed that Obasanjo, as head of the departing military regime, helped in stealing, in quote, the presidential election for Alagisho Shagari of the NPN. Ige's relationship with Obasanjo was not damaged by the mutual hostility between the party, the party leader Awo, and Obasanjo. Obasanjo had said before the election that the best candidate will not win. The UPN and many Nigerians thought that was a direct reference to Awo. While Obasanjo was generally regarded as a public enemy number one in Yorubala, and actually an enemy number one of the UPN and its leader Awo, he did not only continue to be Obasanjo's good friend, he even agreed to let Obasanjo intervene in the dispute between him and his deputy, Chief Sunday Afolabi. This action by the almost led to the termination of his brilliant political career in the progressive camp in Yorubala. Ige's adversaries within the UPN regarded Ige's action as the ultimate anti-party activity and therefore brought him and his deputy to trial at the Yola Convention of the UPN in 1982. Some of the leaders of the party moved a motion for the expulsion of Ige from the party for inviting a known enemy of the party and the leader and of, and of course the enemy of the leader, such as Obasanjo, to settle the dispute between him and his deputy. However, what is often missing in the account of your personal intervention in the dispute between him and his deputy, as detailed in my book that will hopefully come out next year, is that this was merely part of his bigger request for assistance from Obasanjo in connection with his presidential ambition. At this point, both the and the then legal state government, like Alaji Latif Dakundi, were involved in the struggle to succeed that one and were therefore engaged in separate attempts to strategically place themselves in booster for the presidency in 1983 or in 1987. As sources within the group revealed to me, he was therefore hoping to gain some advantage by seeking Obasanjo's assistance in guaranteeing the support of highly placed northerners who were the former head of state's friend. He gave whose friendship with Obasanjo almost ended his political career in the Second Republic. Eventually died while serving the same Obasanjo in the Fourth Republic. In 1999, he was certain of getting the presidential ticket of his party, the Alliance for Democracy, which was in line with the All People's Party against the People's Democratic Party. His opponent was going to be either his friend, Obasanjo, or Dr. Alex Ekwem. In fact, he was so sure of his candidacy that he stated, quote, I'm really looking forward to a campaign contest with Obasanjo or Alex Ekwem. It would be great for him. But he never had that for him. He was not chosen as the lead, as the candidate of the party. And, of course, all else was let loose. One of his admirers even described the decision not to choose again as the candidate of the AD-APP alliance as an apostasy. During my field work on the Yoruba elite, regarding the Yoruba elite, I was told that he vowed to avenge himself on the African-American leaders who failed to select him and seize the leadership of the party from them. What followed this was a big ramp for an eventual division within the Fed Ferry and the Alliance for Democracy. Perhaps as part of his reaction to this injury, he decided to take up a ministerial appointment with his friend, Obasanjo, 
who won the presidential election. Ambassador Dijon to offer again an appointment was ostensibly not only to reward their friendship, but also to deepen the division and of the powerful overall political group, which ensured that Ambassador was thoroughly humiliated at the post in southwestern Nigeria. Obasanjo appointed him as Minister for Mines and Power, which he promising to turn stone to bread. But as he embarked on a thorough and unprecedented struggle to overhaul the power sector in Nigeria, his efforts were sabotaged by some powerful elements within the National Electric Power Authority, which led to a national blackout. Rather than back his friend, and without consultation with him, Obasanjo removed Ige from the power ministry and announced him as the Attorney General of the Federation and Minister of Justice. Ige could not resign immediately, but he was now because he was, he was now in dangerous political circumstances. Meanwhile, there was a crisis in his own state, where his, deputy, his disciple, Tibisa Kadi, the governor, was engaged in a battle with his deputy, the Novorich, uh, he decided with the government. During the same period, he had decided that it was time to leave the government of his friend. He wrote a famous letter to President Obasanjo to announce his intention to return home to reorganize his party, the AD, so as to ensure that his friend's party, the PDP, did not win a single office in southwestern Nigeria. However, he assured Obasanjo that he will work for the president's re-election. What this assurance meant was that he was going to ensure a repeat of the humiliation that Obasanjo suffered in his own base in, 19, in the 1999 election, which he was on, when he was unequivocally rejected by the Yoruba. This rejection had become a point of taunting by Obasanjo's adversaries within his own party, including the vice president, uh, Atiku Abaka, who was interested in challenging the president in 2003. Therefore, Ige's assurance was in no way reassuring to Obasanjo. At any rate, there were also rumors that Ige was still interested in the presidency. In the context of the local crisis in his own state, and with repeated number <coughs> assault from his former protege, the deputy governor of State, Ige was attacked at the palace of the Orly. His cap was removed publicly by a mob, something that is regarded as so ominous in, uh, uh, in Yorubaga. Obishore, who was rumored to have been receiving the backing of Obasanjo's PDP, and his verbal assault on Ike, even dismissed Ike as a traitor. Four days later, on December 21, 2001, Ike was assassinated in his home. One of the suspects, Ulubenga Adibayo, Aliafrayo, later alleged that Omishore contracted those who killed Ike with the support of President Basanjo and others who wanted to ensure PDP's victory in Washington State in the 2003 election. The suspect later recounted, uh, retracted his story. While the trial of Omishore and other sources uh, was going on. Obishore, who had been impeached as deputy governor of Houston, was elected as a senator under Obasanjo's uh, uh, party platform. When eventually the PDP rigged itself into power in all but one of Yoruba state, the PDP government of Houston dropped all charges against the accused. They were subsequently discharged and accused. In the course of the trial, which led to the withdrawal of some of the judges due to pressures and threats from many quarters, <coughs> Justice Atinukegu was left with a lamb. I want justice. I want justice, she cried. How would she have reacted to Aristotle, who stated that where there is true friendship, there is no need for justice? <laughs> in his oration at the case line is this, the case friend and governor of Polish declared, quote, the murderers are among us. He went on to later describe Obasanjo's PDP as a nest of murderers. Stated Shurinka, I am convinced beyond any further doubt that there exists within the ruling party a nest of murderers. Their purpose is power, and to attain and, re and to attain and retain this at all costs is a mission that offers a deep content for moral scruples. In his angry response, President Obasanjo described the guest, my good friend and former Attorney General of the Federation, expressed 
sheer disbelief and utter surprise at Shuenka's accusation. But Shuenka insisted that he was planning to resign from Obasanjo's government in order to prepare his party against the plans by the PDP to use questionable means to unseat the party from the southwest base. Professor Shogadeye, who was present when he gave to Shuenka about his plan, added, quote, anybody who knew Bolaide knew that he loved Obasanjo, but he wanted to make sure that the PDP did not take your plan. This again returns us to Derrida's position about personal friends who can be political enemies and the Schmittian position that because that anything because anything can be political, anything can lead into a division into friends and enemies with the ultimate consequence of physical death. In the months and years that follow followed the gay's assassination, it was difficult to know whether a person just loved the gay back. At least the children didn't think so. Shortly after the burial of his friend, Obasan just said he had taken refuge in the law, adding, if God says, do not fear, what do I do? And he relax. Obasan just quoted from the Bible, book of Isaiah, chapter 41, to the congregation in the 50,000 Pentecostal auditorium. Quote, Behold, all they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. <coughs> in late 2011, his close associate and former governor of Oshunste, Lamadishina, told the newspaper that after he returned from Yoshi to where he died, he was still planning to inform President Obasanjo when the phone rang in his bedroom. The president was on the phone, stated additional. Quote, the question Obasanjo just asked was, is he certified dead? I said, yes, sir. Then he dropped the phone. That was all. I can never forget that experience. It means somebody must have told him about the shooting of Bolaibi. Obasanjo had an agenda to supplant the legacy of Jehovah Maolo, the dreaded Bolaigi that, that was why they planned to kill him. I'm still saying it without any equivocation that the government of Nigeria knew how Bolaigi was killed. That is why the killers cannot be found, unquote. Earlier, Chuenka also publicly accused Obasanjo of dancing on his grave. At some point, when someone mentioned that he had told him that he was not sure Nigeria was worth dying for, Obasanjo responded by saying that whoever was not prepared to die for Nigeria did not deserve to be a Nigerian citizen. He also added that if a person had, if that person had held public office in the past, quote, he was an impostor and did not deserve the office. Again, during the phone-in program, Obasanjo dismissed his late friend as someone who did not know his right from his left. If one were to conclude from all this that Obasanjo is not to be regarded as a true friend of Iki, then how would you respond to the fact that on December 20, 2012, only uh, last December, when he visited one of his greatest admirers and governor of Washington State, of Benny Raufat, the governor requested that Obasanjo should perform the official unveiling of the statue of Ike at the entrance of the governor's office in Washington. At the event, the event where Ike's only surviving son was present, Obasanjo said, quote, Ike was a national leader, especially in the Southwest. His impact was highly commendable. It's a representation of the remembrance of a high caliber of personality whose efforts for the advancement of his people will always remain in the sand of time. Quote, which of the representations of Ike from his friends should be embraced? The one dismissed by Abbasanjo as not knowing his left from his right, or the one whose impact was highly commendable? Some scholars have argued that Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero based the argument on an unproblematized distinction between virtuous and vicious human beings, and human beings who are neither good nor bad. They point out that, quote, although we make this distinction in private sphere and also within the sphere of society, it is at odds with the democratic principle on which a liberal democratic polity is based. Why? Because we can no longer claim to know what or who is virtuous in a democratic context 
in which we have a plurality of visions of goodness. However, it is evident from the cases that I have examined here that the norms connected to political friendship in extant literature, like reliability, loyalty, and voluntary support, are opposed to the principle of political competition. Therefore, where there is political competition among friends, political friendship constitutes a template for potential danger. Now I will conclude. In his famous work on the post-colony, Achille Mbembe argues that the post-colony is characterized by a distinctive style of political improvisation, by tendency to excess and lack of proportion, as well as by distinctive ways identities are multiplied, transformed, and put into circulation. Africanist scholars have examined many of the identities which constitute, quote, an economy of science in which power is mirrored and imagined self-reflectively in the post-colony. But few have paid attention to one important identity, that of friendship, which is often in circulation in African political context, as a specific form of entanglement in the post-colony, which Atokwesi succinctly described as a space of violence and death. Political friendship is susceptible to fatality, to violence and to death, particularly when it involves mutual cravings for power in a space defined, defined by the absence of strong institutions. The post-colony is therefore, quote, a revealing and rather dramatic stage to watch how the intersection of friendship and the political reproduces the challenges of power. However, in spite of the almost insurmountable obstacles to the temptations and stresses of political, uh, political, that political life pose to goodness and to genuine friendship, Cicero insists that friendship is something of a last and best hope for securing and sustaining the kind of leadership that will protect and further develop the polity. Cicero must have been thinking about such friendship as those of President Nelson Mandela and Walter Cicero, an exceptionally life-affirming and nation-building friendship, and not the likes of friendship that I have described here. But the friendship of Mandela and Sisulu in the context of the political seems to be the exception rather than the rule in Africa. In the context of the political friendship, therefore, can be understood as, this, as a systematic relation of amity, constructed by mutual assumptions of goodness and virtue, but sustained in the present by warmth and closeness that, which are useful and pleasurable and driven towards a future of greater benefits, mutual or exclusive. Political friendship are constructed, friendships are constructed over time based on specific needs and an orientation towards the present and the future in terms of the political potential benefits that perhaps already manifest now or is likely to manifest in the future. While reciprocity, mutual trust, and other positive virtues could be the element of such friendship, such virtues are instrumental or secondary to the fundamental basis of political friendship, which is mutual where possible or exclusive when necessary. This can lead to the benefit of one of the parties in the symmetrical relationship of friendship and the loss of the other, including the loss of life. My argument is that the potential for fatality is always already inherent in such political friendship, particularly when the point of convergence of political ambition cannot but produce divergence of interest and therefore divergent actions. Uh, here today, I've tried to show, one, that friendship is important, is as important as other forms of affinity in understanding the ebb and flows of post-colonial political relations. Two, that friendship can be crucial in determining the trajectories of politics, political action, and therefore public goal in post-colonial context. And three, that political friendship uh, uh, has fatal consequences, not only for the individuals involved in such relationship, but also for the larger society. Therefore, to whom you are loyal and who you choose to betray may result in important outcome, not only for individuals, but also for the nation. 
as evident in the cases presented here. Political friendship can and indeed have defined Nigerian politics and the integrity or lack of it of the Nigerian state in the last three decades. Between the friendship of Abiola and Babangida, Babangida and Abacha, Abacha and Abiola, Abiola and Yaradua, Yaradua and Babangida, Yaradua and Abacha, Babangida and Obasa, and Obasa Juadiki, we can account for a significant part of what has happened in Nigeria public life since the mid 1990s. 1980s. Let me end with a popular prayer regarding friendship in my country. Or any ban, or any ban, or any power, what it means is a friend saves, a friend kills. May the Lord not choose for us the friend that will kill us. For Sankara, Abiola Yara, this prayer was never answered. I thank you for that. <laughs>